namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami There were three questions uh, tonight, but I've left them all in my kuti. However, I think I can remember what they were. The first one was to do with whether or not the talks that have been given in the evening are available as recordings. So I'm an this is his department, and I expect that he'll say something about it tomorrow. So, uh, The second one... Second question, I think, said, why is it that Dhamma talks are always monologues? Are there ever Dhamma conversations? When I first read it, I thought it said, why are Dhamma talks always monotone? (laughs) I thought, my talks are not monotone. I'm up and down all over the place. Somebody, a linguistic expert in Newcastle, said that I've got perfect tonal delivery. And then I read it again and said, monologue. Oh, right, okay. (laughs) Right. So that's a very good question. So to say that uh, certainly um, Dhamma dialogue is encouraged and the... The uh, Mahamangala Sutta, one of the discourses the Buddha gave that you will have heard us chant on on many occasions, I expect, in there, halfway through it, where the Buddha is listing all these uh, blessings that can be cultivated, uh, he says that Dhamma-savana is a great blessing, and Dhamma-savana is listening to Dhamma or listening to Dhamma discourse. It's a great blessing to have the opportunity to listen to uh, the way, the truth, the path, the teachings, teachings that lead us to clarity, to insight, to freedom, to listen to teachings when they're well delivered and, and delivered from a place of understanding is indeed a profound blessing. However, the next stanza of the Buddha then goes on to say that Dhammasakacha is a great blessing. And in this particular sutta, it seems to be that there's an escalation of, of blessings until he gets to the ultimate blessing, which is actually uh, the freedom that comes from insight into the Four Noble Truths. But actually, it's just one verse short of there, which is the Dhammasakacha is, is a great blessing. And Dhammasakacha does literally mean Dhamma dialogue. And so it's my understanding that uh, the Buddha really praised Dhamma dialogue over uh, Dhamma discourse. It's great to be able to sit and listen to somebody talk about practice if they know what they're talking about and and they don't mumble and fumble too much. That's that's great, but it's more benefit to engage somebody in Dhamma dialogue because there's a participation, there's a, a shared consideration of uh, the path and of practice. It's for this reason that uh, here in this particular monastery uh, we have uh, there's various structures in place that support both of these. One is the 
the uh, Dhamma Savana, the Dhamma discourses, in a formal situation like this, uh, when we have retreats, then uh, to the best of my ability, or Tanabi Nanda, who taught the last retreat, or whoever else is teaching the retreat, then we will, in the evening, endeavour to, to speak on, on Dhamma themes. So people in their heightened sensitivity, increased receptivity, can take in and consider these teachings. And uh, also on the same thing happens on a Sunday night if you go to visit any of the other monasteries. On uh, one night a week, whether it's the, the moon night or whether it's the Saturday night or Sunday night, uh, people gather one night a week and that there's a Dhamma discourse given. In the time of the Buddha, it was encouraged that that the monks give a uh, explanation or a teaching on Dhamma and be available for dialogue once a week. And this was in the agrarian society when things were still much more earth-based and and in touch, in tune with the rhythms of the earth. The week was divided up into phases of the moon, and so. Uh, as you probably know, we still observe this, the, the lunar calendar here, but secular society observes a solar calendar. And so these days, for us, it's the Sunday night. However, in the time of the Buddha, it was the phases of the moon, the full moon, the new moon, and the two quarter moons in between. And uh, Traditionally, it was the case that, that all spiritual followers, not just Buddhists, but on these phase, moon days, it was like the traditional... Sabbath for people in India at the time, this one day a week, they would go and see their their holy men or holy women, their spiritual advisors, their gurus, their rishis and so on, and and uh, hope to receive teachings. And so it seems to be, and I think it's probably the case that, that throughout time in, in, in most cultures, it seems to be that like one day a week, one-seventh of our psyche is consecrated uh, or dedicated to the sacred and then it, it needs to be that way and it's a wise thing to do and and even though living in secular society as, as many of you do these days it's not uh, Sabbath is not generally acknowledged anymore uh, I still think it's a very wise thing to do to put time aside one day a week to go inner and, and to take on spiritual disciplines whether it means giving up something or studying something or sitting a bit more than usual but one day a week consecrated to the inner world and and if we don't do that well it seems to be the evidence is pretty prevalent that that we get spun out by the outer world and so i know in some buddhist traditions these days it's it is you know there are groups that meet one day a week uh, to practice together it's a very good idea. Or if it can't be one day a week, then one day a month. So in the time of the Buddha, this was the case, not just for Buddhists, but for all spiritual traditions. And But those who were followers of the Buddhists, the lay followers of the Buddhists, Buddha would come to see their monks, and the monks were being very good and, and observing what the Buddha, what they thought the Buddha encouraged them to do, and that would be silent. And so these devoted lay people would go and see the monks, and the monks would all be sitting there in their meditation, being silent, being spiritual. And so they got themselves a bad reputation and and apparently the lay people used to criticize them for sitting there like stupid pigs. That was the expression they used, like dumb pigs. This got back to the Lord and of course the Lord didn't think that was a very good reputation to cultivate and 
So he called the monks together and said, rather you should be a little more sensitive to the needs of those people who you depend on and be available for, for either Dhamma Sakacha or Dhamma, Dhamma Samana, for either engaging in Dhamma dialogue and addressing issues and practice or, or actually delivering discourse. So that tradition has been there since the time of the Buddha. And in our monastery here, as I was saying, we, we do our best to, uh, to give a, a talk and when we're able. And then also with regards to Dhamma dialogue, to be available for discussion every Sunday night, uh, or most Sunday nights, or occasions when it doesn't happen, most Sunday nights at 5 o'clock, uh, Tanabinando is available in the reception room and people come and meet and there's a chance to sit and talk and discuss practice together. Also some of you will be aware and actually some of you participate in in a written correspondence program that that I offer via the internet mostly although some people do use snail mail. Once every six weeks I'll write a a page, an essay on a theme of Dhamma and then this gets sent out. I think there's about there's a couple of dozen people now around the world who receive this correspondence, and then they contemplate this theme in daily life, whether it's discipline or generosity or or taming the passions or cultivating patience and or honesty, whatever these dumber themes. I'll write something. They contemplate it in daily life, and then six weeks later they'll write back to me with their their contemplation on on this particular theme in daily life. Also, they offer comment on uh, their formal practice, their meditation practice, and any study that they're doing. And then six weeks later, they'll get another uh, communication from me commenting on what they've written and with a new theme. And so this has been going on now for a while, and it's generated a very nice dialogue, although it's via uh, cyberspace, uh, most of it. It, it it does serve the need that we feel it seems to serve the need because a lot of these people have been doing it since it started to uh, to be able to engage in others with discussion on heart matters, real matters so much of our talking is about frivolous concerns, casual concerns of life and powerful as our speech is we don't often use it for addressing uh, profound matters. We very easily act verbally uh, in response to very worldly casual concerns. And so I would suggest that uh, there is, in fact, I'm convinced that there's a real human need to be able to meet our fellow human beings in dialogue on matters of truth. I believe it's, it's, it's natural, it's, it's, it's organic, it's true for all of us. Whoever we are, we have that need. And so to find a way of, of, of serving it is skillful. Very few of these two dozen people know anybody else on the program. And it's not as if there's a global community of people all chatting with each other. Um, it's not that kind of a communication, but rather it's a dialogue between them and myself. And we've had some, uh, some very, very meaningful exchanges. And it's rewarding in both directions. So, with, in response to this question about uh, is there only ever monologue, no, hopefully not. That's, that's certainly not the idea. Um, dialogue, from the Buddhist perspective, actually has a, a superior place.
the fact that it may not occur often in the context of, of spiritual environments or so-called spiritual environments could be a result of a number of things. One factor could be that that the um, the teachers or the leaders or whatever may not have a uh, a very conscious understanding or appreciation of the of the process of projection when somebody develops some ability in a particular area uh, meeting other people who who don't have so much ability then it's it is often the case as probably all of us are aware in various situations where we readily project out onto those that are, more, are perceived as being more able and so teachers get lifted up and elevated and if the teachers don't understand this dynamic and consider it skillfully, wisely, carefully, consistently then what happens is that the teacher can easily start to feed on the attention from the students if I can call them students the teachers start to feed on this attention energy this adoration, this admiration that comes from students and the, if you feed on it for a while you can get really puffed up and you can really feel very important and, and at some stage in life probably most of us have been in some position of leadership and, and the feeling of being looked up to is very pleasant but the consequence of actually taking that attention personally makes the other person weak it might make the leader or the speaker or the teacher feel strong or important for a while but what it does to the student or the follower or the disciple is it makes them weak and so what happens is a kind of dependency gets set up and that dependency can go unnoticed, it can be unconscious and go on for quite a long time I've seen this happen and certainly read about it and probably all of you have observed it in some situation or other so if it does happen then there's not much likelihood of dialogue basically there tends more to be sermons and pontification and preaching and lecturing I don't know how you feel about that, but I hope you haven't been feeling too much like that this week. Uh, it's not my intention to be lecturing you or to be preaching or sermonizing because I know when I'm in the receiving end of that kind of thing, it, it really gets up my nose. I, I have an allergic reaction based on uh, early life psychic abuse. I was spiritually abused as a child and as a result I, I have this allergic reaction when people start preaching to me and so I sincerely hope that I, I haven't been preaching to you this week and if I have then tomorrow when you can start talking again please let me know about it and I'll do my best to to look into it um, so that's one cause for why Dhamma Dialogue may not take place another cause is actually on the other end which is whereby those uh, the listeners, the students, the, t the disciples to the degree that they have not consciously acknowledged their own ability then they unconsciously project that ability out onto others 
and there are some people who will actually be quite, um, relatively speaking, contented to live in the kind of dependency that comes from that, whereas I'm weak and you're strong. You're the Almighty and I'm the hopeless case, and I'm in the, the wicked sinner and, and you're all pure and almighty and I'm, I'm willing to put up with it and please you be perfect for me. I'll keep offering you praise and and then I can carry on being inadequate. There's a certain aspect of our psyche which can get used to that uh, unfortunate limited uh, mode of being. If it does become a habit, well then it's very difficult to engage in Dhamma dialogue because there's, there's not a sense of one's own personal ability to hold and to share. I mean, dialogue requires a certain sense of sharing a question. It's going into a consideration together. So to the degree that a student hasn't, or a disciple hasn't, consciously acknowledged their own ability, then they feel unable, and that's how it is. I know this myself very well, how how utterly intimidated I was as a, a young monk whenever I would get near Ajahn Chah or Ajahn Tate, these great beings that I had the good fortune to live with, but I would be trembling with intimidation whenever I got near them. Not because they were monstrous and trying to give me a bad time, not at all, but because I, I was still caught in an in a unconscious habit of projecting my ability out and so one way of, of uh, addressing this predicament, if, if you happen to find yourself unfortunately caught into it, is, is to just observe when, when you're in the company of somebody who may well uh, have more experience and travel further on the path than you do, but in their company you feel inadequate. Not when you're on your own necessarily, but when you're in their company you just start feeling small and inadequate. Well, it's probably good to stop and think, well, why and how am I projecting my ability out onto this person? It could be that they're asking for it. That's part of what so-called charisma is. Charisma can be the, uh, the result of a, of a psychological inflation on the part of the leader, where they're actually so big and so inflated in the perception of themselves that they're actually eliciting this from people. and. You may have had this experience. There are some people you get near them and you just feel like you want to get down on your knees and, and not because they're radiant, but somehow they're just asking for you to do it and you find it difficult to say no. So don't jump to the conclusion you feel weak and inadequate in somebody's company because, because you are inherently weak and inadequate. Not at all. It could well be that, that uh, there are people around who are so um, deluded in their own self-importance that that when you get near them, they just like start sucking this energy from you. And you feel it. And it takes a lot of self-discipline to be able to stay your own person and stay strong and centered and not get pulled into giving your energy away and becoming weak for them. It could also be because we, we have an unacknowledged habit to prefer to see ourselves as weak. And it's, uh, it's perfectly understandable. and A lot of us are taught that. I am weak and you are strong. I am the sinner and you are the almighty. I mean, we're all familiar with that, that tradition of conditioning. And it does make us weak if we, if we don't inspect it. However, with this mindfulness practice, if we 
preparing ourselves with here and now judgment-free awareness then when we have this experience of noticing we're becoming weak and putting somebody up we can receive that experience in ourselves and we can inquire into it and say, well, why do I do this? What's going on? We don't just automatically become pathetic, some kind of obnoxious sycophant. Or we don't get into some sort of rant and hating them because they're making us weak. That's another uh, unfortunate initial reaction that sometimes happens when you, you find that you're becoming weak in somebody's company. You can blame them for it in some sort of rash reaction and hate them. Whereas the uh, more skillful approach would be if we can just... Uh, if, it happens, if it happens regularly, when you go to see a particular person, well, then prepare yourself beforehand and, and go through it beforehand. Okay, well, I go to that, or uh, it's like this, and then I start feeling like that. Right? And if we do prepare ourselves, then when we're there in their company, we'll, there'll be the mindfulness, there'll be the presence, the feeling awareness to be able to receive it and to look and to consider and then ask of ourselves, what's going on here? What's, why do I make myself weak and make them strong? And then uh, over time, I, I trust that we'll, we will come to our own insight, our own conclusions of, of what's going on. And in so doing, we will become conscious of our own ability. But it's not a small thing. I mean, I, I'm rabid on about it as if it's just a, not kind of an obvious thing. I, mean, I, I suffered terribly for, for a <laughs> large portion of my life, preferring to be inadequate and weak and uh, not having any ability. And then you know, there's a certain stage in life which, where you come to where you, I think you've got a choice. Either you die off to your potential of being a, a genuine human being who lives out of their conscious ability uh, and becomes some kind of mechanical automaton who's inherently limited or sees himself inherently limited and just copes with their life. Or one finds whatever support or help is needed from good friends and companions and skillful means to actually look into this process of avoiding our ability. And it is a terrifying thing, those of you that have been through it. And it's a terrifying thing to realize how able we are, to realize we are the authors of our own lives. We are active as the agent of suffering in our life. That suffering is not something happening to us. We are active as the cause, the origin of suffering. That's what we actually are. And to take that on board is really, uh, really rather frightening. I had an interesting, well, curious, I can talk about it now uh, as an interesting or curious experience, but at the time it was a terrifying experience. Uh, a good few years ago now, I, I put myself into a ridiculous situation because I I decided that I was, I, was, uh, I, was, I was getting pretty advanced in my practice and, and I just needed a, just another little push before I broke through some, some, um, some barriers and, and saw some good results. And so uh, what I did was I locked myself into a room for two months. And uh, this was in, in Chithurst House and the attic room had been converted and 
It was actually where the hot water cylinders were, and so it was quite warm and cosy. And it was the winter retreat, and I didn't actually want to be sitting there listening to that particular abbot giving talks every evening. <laughs> so one way or another, I, I uh, convinced myself that it would be a good idea to do this, in, this intense retreat, so I asked permission to lock myself in the room for two months. And one of the other monks very kindly put food outside the door in the morning, once a day. And oh, I think I might have got breakfast, yeah. And then once a day there was emptying the slops bucket. And then, of course, once a fortnight I would have to come down for the Patimoka, but uh, try not to talk to anybody. And So being in this little weeny room, it wasn't very big, it was, it was a very small room, and there was room for me to take a few steps across one side to the other and, and shut myself into this room and, uh, and also put... Um, tracing paper over the window so the light would get in but I couldn't see anything out I couldn't see any trees or people or anything and I thought well this should really crank things up a bit and and it did it, uh, it cranked things up quite seriously <laughs> and, uh, and almost more than I could handle actually I, as you see I've survived in one form or another but it was um, very challenging and I don't recommend anybody does it uh, under any circumstances <laughs> So if you choose to do it, it's entirely your responsibility, not because I had anything to do with encouraging you. But there was one, there was one stage, I got a lot of, um, lot of help from my dreams during this, this period there, because I didn't have anybody to talk to. And, and dreams became, as sometimes happens for me when I'm on retreat, they, carry, they seem to carry a message. And regarding this particular theme of consideration this evening, a dream came to me one night whereby... In this dream, I was with Ajahn Sumato, and a doctor from Thailand came and presented Ajahn Sumato with a Buddha image. And Ajahn Sumato turned around and gave this Buddha image to me. And I noticed at the time he gave it to me that it was, the clock said four o'clock. And when I woke up, it was absolutely clear to me that at four o'clock I was going to become enlightened. I was quite sure about it. I was just this deep, deep feeling. You know how one has sometimes deep feelings and <laughs> I had this deep feeling that this is what it meant. I was going to become enlightened at four o'clock. I was petrified. Much to my surprise. I mean, you'd think I'd be happy, wouldn't you? I'm going to become enlightened. Great. The experience was horrific. Now this was about, I woke up about 2.30 in the morning or 3 o'clock because I wasn't sleeping very much in that rather intense little situation. I waited and I was trembling. I was so afraid that I was going to become enlightened because, well, I didn't realize it immediately. And then when 4 o'clock in the morning passed, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm going to wait till 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Because <laughs> I didn't, you know, in the dream I didn't see whether it was the morning or afternoon that Ajahn Sumedha gave me this Buddha image. <laughs> so I had to wait another 12 hours. And, oh my God, what's it going to be like? And, and these horrible, it, it, was, I was, it was humiliating, utterly humiliating experience because I thought that I wanted to be enlightened. I was getting around thinking I wanted to be enlightened. But when it looked like it was going to happen any minute, then I was in a state of terror. And, I, and reflecting on it, what it was, that, uh, by the way, four past and I didn't get enlightened, just in case you have any doubts. Um, <laughs> It was useful, and I learned something from it, but I, I don't think you could. <laughs> I'm quite sure you couldn't call it enlightenment. Okay. 
But one of the things that I recognized in considering this was that if I was going to be enlightened, it meant I, I, would ha- I just didn't have any excuse for blaming anybody for my suffering anymore. I was, com- I was going to have to be completely 100% responsible for myself. And it really brought up into relief how much I didn't want that. I really actually wanted to pe- depend on other people. I wanted to be able to blame the weather for my suffering. I wanted to blame my body for my suffering. I wanted to be able to blame Ajahn so-and-so for my suffering. There was basically an addiction to projecting my ability out onto others. And so although at the time it was rather humiliating, it, it also was, was a very, very good lesson. So this is all uh, following the theme of of how is it possible to have a Dhamma dialogue or do you just have to put up with being, you know, listening to all the rest of your life to Dhamma discourses? I, I would hope that, that people uh, would want to engage in Dhamma dialogue and, and to find ways of enabling it, to find ways of coming to a conscious appreciation of one's own ability as and when the time is right to do so. The reason for asking for questions in the evening is, is this, partly this. Yeah that I, I, I want to encourage people to listen to your questions and to respect them, to really respect your questions and to feel the validity, the relevance of asking questions. And this is not something that's reflected back to us in our society, not the society that I grew up in anyway. There was the experts, there was the spiritual experts, the medical experts, the legal experts, One's life is full of experts and muttonheads. And, and what are you going to be? You're going to be an expert or a muttonhead. That was the kind of world that I grew up in. There was the professionals and labourers. I don't think that's a very good model for society, really. So I don't think I was alone in growing up with that kind of conditioning. And So when we do come across the feeling of being intimidated by the so-called experts, uh, whether it's a spirit, so-called spiritual expert or or a medical expert, then it's good to bring it into our practice. And, and I, I still find this when I'm in the waiting room at the doctors. The way it's set up, you know, it's so intimidating, the structure of the place, and it's not, it's not very friendly. And there's this professional man who's got all the experts and he's only got five minutes for me. I like to practice with it and just say, well, what's going on that I, you know, I make them so powerful? So in the context of our Dhamma practice, I would encourage people to you know, really pay attention to this and, until uh, we, we find a, a, that place within ourselves where we're giving our energy away unskillfully, unnecessarily. There can be a, you know, there can be a skillful, willing giving away of one's energy. Uh, giving away of one's heart energy can be a gesture of devotion, of respect. And, and when it's done willingly and consciously, well then it's beautiful. And it doesn't make the giver feel weak, it makes the giver feel enriched. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.